This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This interview with Cory Doctorow was recorded on February 8th, 2013. My guest is Corey Doctorow, whose latest book is titled Homeland. It's a sequel to Little Brother. These are being marketed as young adult novels. Corey Doctorow has a long and pretty distinguished history in science fiction and in the world of computers and free speech, contributor to magazines and websites, ongoing at boingboing.net co-founded Open Source OpenCola and has dealt with several other issues, which we will talk about. Corey Doctorow, Homeland is also the name of a Showtime TV series. Why did you choose to either keep the name, create the name, not change the name? Originally, Little Brother went through a period where it was called Homeland in manuscript because the uh, marketing department wasn't sure whether young people would have heard of Orwell, and they thought that they might associate it with the TV show Big Brother. And I always liked the name Homeland. And I live in the United Kingdom where I don't think we have that TV show. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I'm pretty sure we don't have that TV show. (laughs) So it, it wasn't really on my radar. But I'm also pretty sanguine about about title duplication. I mean, you know, I write in in the world of science fiction where there have been several celebrated novels called Nightfall, and you know, I've I've deliberately played with that with a series of stories that have the same titles as famous stories. I I was up for the Hugo Award for a story called I Robot, and then again for a story called True Names. Uh, I've written stories uh, with titles like Enda's Game, and I'm now working on a story for a Neil Stevenson Arizona State University project called The Man Who Sold the Moon. So using other people's titles is something I've been at for a long time. The main character, Marcus, now I don't know how deliberate that was. On some level, was Marcus Aaron Schwartz? I don't think so. I mean, lots of people have asked me that. And obviously, Aaron is an old friend of mine. I, I knew him from the age of about 14, and he was a very clever kid. But he wasn't like Marcus. Uh, You know, he was like Marcus in that he was technologically skilled, but their personalities were not, had lots of ways in which they were different. And then the other thing people ask is, well, is this meant to be you as a kid? And I was never that cool either. It may be aspirational, but it's certainly not uh, biographical. You know, he's he's a construct of lots of bright young people I knew and know. He has his own problems, and some of them are, are familiar to people who followed Aaron's stories, but some of them are just his own. Both Little Brother and Homeland are young adult novels. There's characterization, you follow the plot. But it seems to me in reading the books that there's more to it than that, that there's something else that you're doing. Can you talk about that? I think on the one hand, they are intended as artworks. But they're also intended to instruct, but not instruct through kind of recipes or through recitals of fact, but rather we've passed the era where you need a book like Steal This Book or The Whole Earth Catalog to tell you what's out there. Everything that you could possibly want to know how to do is one query away. What you need to know is what to query, right? What you need to know is what's possible. And so what I feel like is that if you write a novel in which people do and live in a way that is inspiring, 
and you make it clear that the stuff that's in this book is stuff that also does or could exist in the real world, that you then give young people the one step that they're missing to actually make it a reality for themselves, which is the knowledge that it's possible so they can go and search for it. The time frame for Homeland and Little Brother is like a contrafactual near future that uh, is deliberately vague, deliberately indeterminate. And I try to play with that by ensuring that there's always mostly possible things, lots of real things, some things that aren't real but are possible, and some things that are probably impossible given our current state of the art, as a way of kind of, I think, heightening the sense that this is a near now but not meant to be literally parsed out from now. There's no set of steps that takes you from here to there so that you also can't say, well, wait, we skipped one of those steps you predicted. Uh, therefore, this is no longer uh, an accurate prediction of the future. I think science fiction sucks as a predictive literature anyway. You know? Well, yeah. <laughs> science, fiction's, science fiction's reputation as a, as, a, as a predictive literature is like it's like firing a shotgun into the side of a barn and then drawing a target around the space where all the pellets have hit. You know, we, we've had so many science fiction predictions and so few of them have come true, and yet we cite those as science fiction's great predictive strength. What science fiction, I think, is really great at is inspiring the future. You know, Gene Roddenberry didn't predict the Motorola flip phone, but Gene Roddenberry inspired those engineers to make the Motorola flip phone with the Star Trek communicators. You know, to the extent that I'm trying to, to, to do something with the future here, that's what I'm trying to do. Cory Doctorow, toward the end of the book, there's a demonstration, and in order to stop the demonstration, police use a gun, some kind of electronic device, to cut off all electronics in the immediate area. Does that exist? The Herf guns, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, Herf guns are real for sure. I mean, you know, as, as long ago as like 10 years ago, there was a kid who won a science fair prize for a $200 uh, Herf gun that was a car battery and an old um, pizza dish, satellite dish, that it could use to, to uh, reboot a laptop at 100 feet. So herfing electronics is definitely real. Whether or not the police are currently planning or the military are, are, are planning like sort of adversarial weaponized herf devices, I, I, I don't think so. Um, but there's no reason to say they couldn't. I think that it's way more likely than the police say killing cars that they're chasing with herf guns is that is more likely that you'll get things like... Um, uh, telemetry systems in cars that have a lawful interception requirement like the one that we have in phone switches now where anyone who builds a phone switch has to build in a, a facility to allow for police wiretaps to be initiated remotely so the police don't have to go down to the to the central office of the phone company they just log into a computer type it and they can start wiretapping a phone that lawful interception is a increasing trend in lots of different realms of hardware and I think it's way more likely that you'd have like an outgrowth of, of something like uh, the, the GPS or sat-nav that's already built into your dashboard, having some kind of lawful interception backdoor where the police could could remotely cause your engine to, to stall out or, you know, switch you into a low gear or whatever. And, and of course, once that happens, just as happens with lawful interception with the phone system, which has been thoroughly compromised and where crooks have gained access to it and used, to wire, used it to wiretap people, you'll have carjackers who are breaking into cars' uh, automated uh, lawful interception systems and just causing the cars to stop so they can, they can rob their owners. In all of this, obviously, you can leave your iPhone on or off and somebody could conceivably track you as well. Yeah, well, and especially with the iPhone, it's, it's really troublesome because the iPhone has what um, 
the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998 calls an effective means of access control to a copyrighted work. And the reason that's ma that matters is that it's illegal to remove effective means of access control to a copyrighted work, even if you don't break the law. It's also illegal to tell someone how to remove it, and it's illegal to tell someone information that might lead to its removal. And what that means is examining closely the inner workings of an iPhone is, is illegal. And so you, when security researchers have discovered widespread vulnerabilities or bad behavior from the carriers, it's usually started in Android where there is no such effective means of access control and then has provided the clues to discover it in, in um, the iOS platform. So Trevor Eckhart in 2011 received legal threats from all the major cellular phone carriers in this country because he had discovered that they'd been covertly loading a piece of software called Carrier IQ on their phones. And he discovered this in Android, but it came out that it had been installed in iOS too, 141 million handsets in aggregate across America. And theoretically, the software was there to help them track network conditions and see where they were getting dropouts and SMSs that wouldn't send. But it also gave Carrier IQ real-time information about the location of everyone who had one of these phones and access to all of their keystrokes, including passwords, and access to all of their SMSs, and access to the memory of the phone, including their photos. And, you know, I think most of us would prefer that our phones not give access like that to third parties, even if they have the best of intentions. And it was only because he was able to decompile a, an Android phone, to take apart an Android phone and look closely at it, that he was able to discover it. And then that gave him what he needed to discover it in iOS. But if it had just been in iOS, it may be that no one would have discovered it because Apple's devices are illegal to look inside. Would you then recommend staying away from Apple? Oh, yeah. I mean, as a creator, I find Apple to be absolute poison. I know a lot of creative people swear by their equipment, but, you know, Apple has engineered a world in which um, you can't install apps unless Apple has signed off on them. And it's illegal to figure out how to install apps unless Apple has signed off on them. And what that means fundamentally is if I'm a creator who makes a copyrighted work and you're an audience member who wants to buy it for me, Apple have figured out a way to make copyright law illegal for you to buy the copyrighted work I made from me and give me money for it and put it on your device unless Apple approves of it and takes a 30% cut. And not only is that 30% cut high and it's gone higher because it used to be 30% of the initial, initial purchase price and now it's 30% of all the money that app generates forever, all the in-app in transactions, but it's also the case that Apple exercises rightly editorial discretion about which apps it blesses. And that's fine. You know, when I worked in a bookstore, I didn't sell every book that was printed. I sold right. the books that I liked. But app, what Apple has said is that if you are an Apple customer and there's something you want to use that they don't like, it's against the law for you to do it, which is a bit like me saying, well, once you bought a book from me, it's against the law for you to buy a book from anyone else. And Apple's rejected apps that I think are really legitimate, like an app that tracks all the drone strikes by American drones and deaths from drone strikes. And I think that that's political news that is of moment and significance. And the fact that Apple feels like it, it's too gloomy for their platform shouldn't be the final say in whether or not people who want that information delivered to their mobile device get to find out about it. Cory Doctorow, there's also this idea of creating fake people to send comments. Oh, yeah. Personality, persona management. Right. Yeah. That's real, right? Oh, yeah. So H.B. Gary was a, um, a U.S. military contractor and security company that was hacked by elements of the, the collective known as Anonymous. And the people who broke into their systems dumped all of their email. And included in that email dump was a response to an Air Force uh, intelligence office request for proposals for persona management software 
that would allow uh, the people who used it to pilot up to 20 identities on the internet to support each other's points of view inside of online arguments as a means of changing the people's perception of what's what's that kind of normal point of view? What What is it that people, uh, you know, what is it the average person on the street thinks and kind of reframe what's extremism and what isn't? And, you know, this is a tool that's already used for control in Russia. It's a, it's a widely used tool by the Kremlin. And in China, there's the notorious 50 cent army who are paid half of an RMB, which is what the, their currency, a renminbi or 50 cents for every post that they make that's pro-government and that uh, discredits people who've put up internet uh, messages that um, embarrass the government. And that's turned out to be a far more effective means of opinion control than uh, censorship, right? Uh, You know, making it seem like people who say that there's corruption are crazy conspiracy nuts because everybody else rushes in and says, oh, what corruption? You're crazy. You know, yeah, so you say some police chief has done something bad, but I know lots of police chiefs who do good things. And then someone else chimes in and says, yeah, me too. I've never seen a bad police chief and on and on and on. And when you get the, the it makes the one person who said that there is corruption look like a kook, which is way more effective than just censoring their message. And even beyond that, once you become aware of this fact, it create so much static in the environment that nothing gets through. Yeah, well, and and it means that every discussion devolves into a discussion about whether the the person arguing opposite you is arguing sincerely or is just being there to pilot a persona that is echoing a message that's been given to them by some corporate actor or by government. It is analogous, although not not nearly as grave as uh, the role of agent provocateurs in movements. You know, in the UK where I live, we've had these revelations that um, the Met, the London police force, uh, infiltrated environmental groups with undercovers who acted as agent provocateur and who actually became romantically involved with activists and even fathered children with them. You know, once you know that, it means that every person who you think of as your friend and comrade, you have to second guess. That's so corrosive. I mean, my parents were involved in, in radical Marxist politics in Canada when I was a kid. And that movement was really scarred by the period of martial law in 1970 when Pierre Trudeau imposed the War Measures Act. And um, when it came to light that there were lots of undercovers and, and lots of surveillance and lots of agents provocateur. And they had a friend who was a, a nice guy, but was always a little weird. And they weren't sure about him. Nobody was sure about him. They thought that there was something off about him. And so it wasn't that they were hostile to him, but I think he was always kept a bit at arm's length. And there was something off about him. He was suicidally depressed and he killed himself. And part of why he killed himself is probably attributable to the fact that he was isolated from his friends. Not a lot, but a little, because they weren't ever sure how much they could trust him. It's the worst thing you can do to people who are trying to work together is to inject uncertainty about whether the people in their midst are there because they're honestly trying to further the same goals or because they're there to sabotage them. The idea of the persona creation reminds me a little bit of the relationship between true grassroots movement and AstroTurf. Absolutely. No, I think it is exactly the same thing. And I think that, you know, you see this in, in online culture already where discussions about global warming or tobacco or obesity or whatever often devolve into a discussion about whether the people on the other side are in fact paid agents of some industrial entity. What that means is actually, it, it means that no substantive discussion takes place because nobody wants to engage seriously with people who have an opposing point of view because the assumption is that anyone with an opposing point of view isn't sincere in that view and is just is just being paid 
to be obstreperous or to, to derail the conversation. That's Fox News right there. There you go. But you know what? There are people who watch Fox News and probably people who appear on it who are absolutely sincere in their beliefs. And we will never come to an accommodation with those people for so long as we assume that they're being paid. But because some important fraction of them are paid to hold those beliefs, it means that we have a hard time ever coming to a point where we can agree on how to move forward on the parts of the agenda of the human race that we do agree with. I mean, caring for the earth is a deeply conservative value. You know, historically, people who are involved in conservation, not ecology, which is an idea that's that's older, newer than conservation, but people involved in conservation often came from what we would call today the Christian right. In theory, there's a great argument to be made by people who care about the destiny of the planet, who, who think of themselves as being on the left, that people who are who have deeply held Judeo-Christian beliefs should be in common cause with them. But because we're never sure who on the other side is sincere and who's just a shill, we never get to have that discussion. And this brings in the notion, all of this brings in the notion of how technology complicates our lives in ways that we never even think about. Well, yes, technology complicates it a bit in as much as we we are now at this remove from one another. But, you know, Hearst started a war to sell newspapers. And I don't think that this is so much um, a symptom of technological change as a a symptom of political change, of of the, the rise of corporatism. Technology enables globalism and it enables the global supply chain. And it creates a plausible case for having a workforce that can't afford to buy the goods that they manufacture because somewhere else in the world is the customer for those goods. And that creates these giant multinational corporations that have no national loyalty and that, that will happily pillage not just foreign countries, but their, but their nominal homes. And so maybe that's a technological story. But that's the thing that's complicated, right? It's the corporatism. When it comes to copyrights and all, we could always go back to Edison's warn anybody who else who wanted to make a film. Yeah, sure. I mean, the founding the founding story of Hollywood is the founding of uh, is the story of patent violation, where right. the yeah. Edison Trust wouldn't let people make movies unless the Edison Trust approved of them, and they approved of a small number of subject matters, and they also uh, kept a quota on the number of films being made because they didn't want to see film spread very widely. So people who founded studios like Fox and MGM moved to Hollywood so they could be far away from patents, uh, from the patent agents of Edison who were based out of New Jersey and they could make movies with impunity. Corey Doctorow, is it true that if you tighten your butt, you can defeat a lie detector? It's true that, that one of the techniques for screwing up a polygraph is to clench your anus. Yeah, it's, it's true. Uh, <laughs> because, because lie detectors aren't very good and because the thing that, a li- that the lie detector uses as, as a proxy for the lie is um, uh, pulse and um, a heart rate and galvanic skin response and a respiration and rhythmically clenching and unclenching your bum does recruit major muscle groups, changes the characteristics of your nervous system and does recruit a lot of blood. And so if you do that, you create an enormous amount of noise from which the, the signal of how your uh, autonomic nervous system is changing in response to what you're saying or any other nervousness you might feel, that signal is much harder to pick out. In homeland, there are times when Marcus is sitting in front of his computer and he's doing programming and this or that. My eyes glazed over, which would be, you know, given my age, my eyes would glaze over. Those eyes, a 15-year-old's eyes would not glaze over that. They'd be able to follow it. I hope so. Sure. I mean, I, I mean, you know, Little Brother's Inception comes out of, uh, in part, frustration with, with techno-thriller films, which are a very, very successful genre, but which seem to me to be 
such a stirring indictment of Hollywood because the the techno thriller is fundamentally a movie. The techno and techno thriller is that it's about computers. Um, although Bruce Sterling says a, a techno thriller is a is a science fiction novel with the president in it. That's I, probably right. <laughs> it's pretty good, yeah. But a techno thriller is a movie about things that people do with computers, and yet the computers and techno thrillers bear no resemblance to the computers that I use and you use every day. You know, they they all the text appears in capital letters, and it rolls across the screen slowly, and it makes this noise when it does. It goes. If I had that computer, I would throw it out the window. And it seems to me that you know the implicit message here is that computers on their own are actually not very interesting. And that, to me, is so totally wrong. You know, computers fascinate me, and they've endlessly fascinated me literally since the age of six when my dad started bringing home terminals connected to a VAX at uh, at the University of Toronto. I wanted to write a story that was a thriller in which the thrillingness arose from computers working as computers do, not computers working in this contrafactual way that's so unbelievably banal and dumb. At that point, going back to the origins of Little Brother, when you were doing that, that's when you decided, okay, I'm going to make it a young adult novel. I'm going to make it in this semi-alternate universe where 9-11 has been transformed to the, transferred to the West Coast and where San Francisco has to deal with the issues of homeland security. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, keep it so rooted in our modern world that people who know computers can follow it. Yeah, I mean, I was inspired by everything from Encyclopedia Brown to uh, the Scott Westerfeld novel Peeps, which is a, a, a great uh, vampire novel that's grounded in, in contemporary parasitology and alternates chapters with short lectures on uh, parasites, which is such a fascinating subject. You know, the end result of, of a long-running parasit- parasitological war between humanity and, and its parasites. And it's such a nice way of introducing science into the literature. And it was grounded in books like How Spacesuit Will Travel and other Heinlein juveniles that were unabashed in their use of technology and scientific concepts to advance the plot, but also the plot to advance your understanding of those subjects. There are three afterwards, one of them from Anonymous, uh, yeah, from WikiLeaks. From yes. WikiLeaks, yeah. yeah. Jacob works on WikiLeaks and on tour, Jacob Applebaum. And one from Aaron Swartz. That's right. And then a third one from you. And in yours, you recommend a book called The Information by James Gleek. Yeah. If you want to understand some of the most exciting and important concepts in information theory and computing and num- and math, some of, the, some of the most significant ideas we have out of that, and also the history of computers and how it's entwined in those. James Gleick, who's one of our great science writers and a national treasure, did, did such an amazing job with, with the information. And in particular, his discussion of incompleteness and girdle, which I'd struggled with that all my life trying to understand it. And I had a moment of sheer satori reading this book where, like, I just, I just like, I stopped. I was walking down the street reading the book because I do most of my discretionary reading after I drop my daughter off at daycare and I'm walking to my office. And I just had to stop where I was and just go like, oh, my God, I get it. I finally get it. You have a company called Ziz, Z-Y-Z, which I guess comes out of X-Z. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. One of those, I, I was aiming for a, for a company name that looked like it came out of one of those pretentious loony naming consultancies. Uh, how close are we, do you think, to a ZYZ in our world? I think we've got it. I mean, I think that that's the 
that's that's kind of the product of the private equity world is that you essentially have these uh, strategic alliances from hell. You know, it's like we used to call in the dot com day a roll up, where a company buys a whole bunch, or a fund buys a bunch of companies that have related expertise and turns them into one company. It rarely worked very well. You know, the the hedge fund era roll up in the what you might call the gulag wealth space, which is like, um, you know, security services, private prisons, military contractors, armament developers and so on. Those roll ups are as evil and nightmarish as you can imagine. Uh, as somebody fighting that as an activist, for one thing, let's let's talk briefly about copyright laws. One of the issues is, of course, that, you know, you do a work of art. You want to get paid for it because you have to live. At the same time, so much is free and should be free. How do you think you actually balance that? Is there a way to balance it? You know, I would frame it a little differently. Okay. I mean, we have this idea that copyright is something that everyone has always had to abide by, right? Like it's always been illegal to copy a movie. But in the 1955, saying it's illegal to copy a movie is like saying it's illegal to carve your name on the moon with a green laser, right? The major reason that people aren't carving their names on the moon with a green laser isn't because it's illegal. It's because right? they can't. It's because they can't. Right. Um, and in fact, copyright law has always been created by taking industry practices from the entertainment industry and its supply chain and enshrining them in law. And as a result, it has never been designed so that normal people can understand it because it's never been designed to be in the realm of what normal people have to navigate in their daily round. And the way that copyright tested to see whether you were inside or outside of its jurisdiction or its scope was by asking whether you were handling a copy or making a copy because that always implied some industrial activity. Every book implied a printing press. Every film implied a film lab. Every record implied a, a record pressing factory. But we've had hyperinflation in copying, right? Now you copy all day long, including creative works. But the idea that that suddenly puts you into the scope of entertainment industry regulation is wrong. And for an analogy, imagine that we had for a moment real financial regulation, which would be wonderful. And imagine that it said... The way that you know whether this rule applies to you is whether you're doing a transaction of $10 million or more. Anyone who does a transaction of $10 million or more falls under this rule set. And then the economy collapses, we have runaway inflation, and a sandwich costs $10 million. Does that mean that if you buy a friend lunch, you've become a banker? Or that we need a new way to figure out whether or not financial law applies to you? I think the reasonable answer is the second one. We've had hyperinflation in copying. And yet we continue to say that the rules that are used by lawyers from Universal who want to license Harry Potter from Warner in order to build a Harry Potter theme park should be the same rules that a 12-year-old navigates when she wants to make a Harry Potter fan site. And there may be rules that should apply to Harry Potter fan sites. I don't know if there should be, but there may be, but they shouldn't be the same rules that govern industrial activity. For one thing, if they're easy enough for a 12-year-old to follow and get right reliably, they'll never be nuanced enough for industry to use. And if they're nuanced enough for industry to use, then the vast majority of people who find themselves supposed to be uh, in compliance with them will never be in compliance with them. So we can talk about substantively what would a good copyright law look like. But a more important question is who should a good copyright law affect? Right? I think it would be much more productive to say, what should we do to test whether or not you are in copyright law's scope 
Mm. And once we do that, then you kind of dial back the discussion to making a copyright law that fairly balances the interests of people in industry, the, the different parts of the industry, the creators, the investors, the distributors, and the other intermediaries. But what you don't do is you don't have to say, well, so what should teachers do about this? And what should, you know, what should people who are photocopying the label on a can of soup to stick it up in their convenience store and write now three for a buck underneath have to do? I mean, those people aren't in the entertainment industry. And some 15-year-old who bit torrents a bunch of movies to watch once, who gives a damn? Well, and, and or who bit torrents them and never watches them, which is, you know, when you hear about these raids right. on, on people who've got 150,000 movies. They don't watch them. They don't watch them. They're just cataloging them. Copying is a feature and not a bug, right? When my daughter was born uh, in London, my mom came over for a visit from Canada, and she has a, a, a doctorate in early childhood education. She knows a lot about little kids. She's We call her the baby whisperer. You know, my daughter was a week old. She said, have you stuck your tongue out at her yet? I said, no, Mom, I haven't stuck my tongue out at my one-week-old daughter yet. Why would I want to do this? And, you know, she was little, my daughter. She she hadn't looked in a mirror yet. She could touch her face and maybe her tongue, but not very well. She was, she was still mm-hmm. in the stage where she was just flailing. She didn't know she had a tongue the way you and I know we have a tongue. But when my mother held her in her arms and stuck her tongue out at her, my daughter looked back up. And stuck her tongue out back. Because we copy like we nuzzle for the breast. Copying is where language acquisition comes from. Copying is the foundation of science, right? Standing on the shoulders of giants. And to say that copying per se is something that we shouldn't do is to deny the artistic progress of everybody who's ever gone into the arts. I copied like a crazy person when I was 17 years old. You know, our courting ritual was the mixtape. I would have been a virgin into my 20s if it wasn't for, uh, you know, cassette players that could record LPs. So for me to say, oh, well, when I did it, that was part of my legitimate artistic development. But when you do it to me, that makes you a crook. It's just rank hypocrisy. It also, you know, stops things like sampling, obviously. Well, sure. And yeah, it strangles whole art forms in their, cr- in their cradle. You know, no one will ever make an album legally like It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back or Paul's Boutique. Because if you cleared those two albums, which are the two most profitable hip hop albums of all time, if you cleared the samples on them, both of them would lose more than $10 million. In print, of course, you know, you can always use small amounts and mm-hmm. that's fine. Nobody argues with it. Well, unless it's a small amount of a song, in which case the, right. the common practice, although probably not what the law requires, the common practice is to seek permission and often pay for it. And that's because the doctrine of fair use, which is a, a very fuzzy doctrine for all that one of its its features is that it's flexible enough to accommodate new technologies and uses we haven't contemplated. It, that flexibility also means that it's very hard to predict going in what is and what is not fair use. Uh, Cory Doctorow, where do we sit on the PIPA, SOPA, etc.? story now. Well, so PIPA and SOPA, which were this crazy copyright proposal that had lots and lots of bad features to it and that was being rammed through Congress about a year ago, is dead. And it died because of really cool next generation activist moves that a lot of people, including Aaron Swartz, were involved with designing new ways of getting people uh, to make points forcefully with their lawmakers to the point where 8 million phone calls were routed to congressional and Senate switchboards in 24 hours by constituents complaining about SOPA. But SOPA continues by other means. Uh, The U.S. is engaged in free trade agreements, the transatlantic free trade agreement and the transpacific free trade agreements that are both being conducted in secret and that both are primarily concerned with copyright. 
and that both uh, we know from the leaks that we've seen have had all kinds of crazy elements in them uh, one time or another. Things like uh, three strikes and you're out rule that says if you're accused of, of having a network connection that someone used in the commission of a copyright infringement, not that you prove that any copyright infringement took place or that it was you that did it, but an accusation, three accusations, results in you and your whole family being disconnected from the internet all the way up to things like mandatory laptop border searches uh, looking for infringing material and everything in between, the, the, you know, this is bananas. And because it's not being done by the legislative branch, but by the executive branch, by the U.S. Trade Representative who takes the position along with this administration and the Bush administration that treaties can be entered into without congressional oversight, that they can be signed by the, by the administration all on their own, we, this is almost totally off our radar. No NGOs get to go to these meetings. No press are welcome at these meetings. They're so secretive that when some public interest groups tried to hold a meeting in the same building, the same hotel in L.A. where one of these meetings were taking place, the U.S. Trade Representative called the hotel up and made the hotel cancel their reservation. And we know that because their reservation was canceled. And then they called back pretending to be a wedding, wanting to book the same ballroom. And they were told that the reason their reservation had been canceled is the hotel was double booked. When they called back and said, oh, we're, you know, we're the whatever, the free. Schultz wedding, they were like, oh, yeah, no, that ballroom's free. We got tons of empty space this weekend. So what can people do? Well, people individually can't do anything, but people collectively, as we saw with Sofa and Pipa, can make amazing things happen. The vanguard of this fight is being carried by groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for whom I used to work. They're here in San Francisco by groups like Demand Progress that Aaron Swartz helped found, the Free Software Foundation, which you know the engineers and programmers in your audience will already be familiar with and that always needs the contribution of technical people, the Software Freedom Law Center, which is carrying the battle on software patents, and groups like Public Knowledge, who lead the front on network neutrality. And there are many other groups that could use uh, Creative Commons and so on that could use your money, your volunteer energy, your uh, evangelism, and even just your presence on their mailing list so that when the moment comes that we all need to call our senators together and put the fear God into them, you know that it's time to do it. Um, and that's, I think, how we solve this. You know, the good news is that there are more people every day for whom the internet is more than a glorified cable TV system, right? There are more people every day for whom the internet means their lifeline to the world. You know, geeks, for some reason, talk a lot of smack about their grandmothers. I don't know what this is about. My grandmother's a perfectly clever lady, maybe a little neurotic at times, but who isn't? And she's a great typist, but she was never a computer person. She was a secretary. And when my daughter was born, I live in London, she lives in Toronto, she realized if she wanted to see my daughter for more than a couple of weeks a year that I'm in Toronto, she would have to figure out Skype. So she went and figured out Skype because it's not hard. And now these policy questions for her are not an abstraction about devices that she has no use for. They're the question of whether or not she gets to see her great granddaughter. Do internet petitions work? I understand, you know, I looked at Boing Boing mm -hmm. uh, earlier today, uh, this, and you had a petition to get Steve Heyman, the guy who harassed Aaron. Uh, fired. Do these petitions work? They sometimes do. I mean, SOPA and PIPA worked. You know, it worked with ACTA, and they're part, they can be part of a larger uh, activist movement. You know, one of the things that happens when you get a lot of signatures on a petition, you know, like, like hundreds of thousands of signatures on a petition, is it makes the issue underlying the petition into a newsworthy event, which creates more media attention, which means that the groups that are fighting for it are more likely to capture the ears of regulators or lawmakers or of a wider public who will help them in their own way. 
Do these new ways of dealing, do, do you think they replace the old-fashioned demonstration? You had a huge demonstration in Homeland, for instance, mm-hmm. and you know, my feeling in reading about this giant f- fictional demonstration is that if it's not being covered, if it's being turned off, people don't know it exists, but you can't stop online stuff. Well, you know, I think that the post-WTO de- demonstration militarization of the police response to demonstrations has been very hard on protest movements. The fact that police forces around the country, in particular in Oakland, are such bedwetting cowards when they see people in the street and feel like, you know, any presence in the street is something that has to be met with maximum force and kettling. And London is another police force where I live is another police force where that they've covered themselves in absolute shame in recent years in Toronto, where I'm from, too, during the G20, that protests are hard to do now. But one of the things that I have a lot of hope for is the use of technology to improve protests. In London, a group of people involved with the London hack space after the widespread use of the the tactic of kettling, when police encircle protesters in a police line that gets smaller and smaller and then arbitrarily detain them for hours and hours on end, these people who'd who'd seen kettling happen to student protesters decided to invent an anti-kettling app that they called Suki. There's this British nursery rhyme, Polly put the kettle on and we'll have tea, Suki take it off again. So Suki takes the kettle off. So they built an app where you um, you have mobile devices that you use to to document where the police lines are. And it's and, in the book. And it's in the book. And yeah. that, that information is relayed back to people who are sort of playing the home game, people who aren't out on the protest, but who can assemble all of that intelligence into a coherent picture about how to avoid the police kettle. And then that can be retransmitted to people on the ground so they can get around it. And I have a lot of hope for that. I'm of the boomer generation, you're of Gen X. How do you think the new millennium generation is dealing with all of this? You know, I I think it's hard to make those generational characterizations, especially in the much more fragmented modern era where the unified identity is has been replaced by lots of sub-identities that are that are organized around the internet where, you know, you can find the million other people who feel the way you do around the world and form a subculture with them instead of the people who are nearby to you. Well, well we're both well Go, oh, yeah, being having been on the well, you know, we were part of that early the early wave of that. I think that when you look at the Arab Spring, when you look at the anti-austerity demonstrations, when you look at the fights against ACTA and the rise of the Pirate Party and other hopeful signs and Occupy, you see that among young people there is a real sense of injustice and a sense that injustice can be righted through collective action. Uh, Cory Doctorow, before we wrap up here, Mm -hmm. I do have some questions about science fiction because Uh I'm an old science fiction fan. Did you read a lot of the classic science fiction when you were growing up? Oh, sure. And I worked at a science fiction bookstore in Toronto, Baca Books, which is the oldest science fiction bookstore still extant in the world. Did you always want to be a science fiction writer? Was that from the age of six, basically? Yeah, I was a fan. I was a con going fan. I was a gopher. I used to volunteer at our local con and sleep in the gopher hole. And yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I am a old line fandom fan. It seemed to me that science fiction kind of, well, it's always been bifurcated. There's always been adult science fiction and you know science fiction for fifteen year olds. But it seems to me that. Science fiction genre now has become science fiction for 15-year-olds, and the mainstream has absorbed the rest of science fiction, except for people. I mean, there are some older writers who don't apply to that. I don't know. I mean, where would you put Paolo Bacigalupi on that? You may not just be reading contemporary adult 
uh, science fiction aimed squarely at adults. I mean, Paolo has written a young adult novel that was very good called Shipbreaker, but he writes material that's that's definitely for adults. And in fact, there are lots of writers with that dual identity, Kathy Koja um, and uh, um, Ian MacDonald, who's one of my all-time favorite writers. He's a Scottish writer who lives in Ireland, Northern Ireland, is an amazing adult writer, but also has some great young adult books from Pyre Books. I know that people, for instance, like China Mieville have broken through right. to the mainstream. Well, that's true, but I think China will tell you that he's a science fiction and fantasy writer. Sometimes science fiction comes out of a culture. So an example of a writer who is very widely admired in the mainstream, but who definitely comes out of science fiction culture is Jonathan Lethem, right. who's you know a fan-going, you know, con-going fan whose first sale was to Aboriginal science fiction and nevertheless is a MacArthur winner and, and whose works are, are very much mainstream. You know, if you think about how many writers who are mainstream now read science fiction mm-hmm. and how it warped their brains in a good way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Corey Doctorow, uh, Homeland ends with certain stories unfinished. Things are in the air. Are you working on a sequel to it? Not really, but though I wrote a novella that follows on from this, and it was commissioned by the White House Office of Technology, who are doing a series of XPRIZE-style technology challenges where they're putting up cash purses for the development of technology. And they're working with Brian David Johnson, who's Intel's chief futurist and uh, someone I've worked with before, and a great believer in something called uh, design fiction or prototyping in fiction, where you uh, write fiction about technology under development that helps people, the engineers and the technical people, understand where it might go and how it might be used. So um, uh, my prompt was to write a story about superheroes and people with real superpowers as a technological thing. And I wrote a story about uh, protesters in the East Bay who use uh, their own drones and actuators around their ankles that give them cues about which way to move so they can school like fish and and gracefully avoid police lines so that they can have demonstrations that the OPD can't shut down, which may not have been what the White House was intending. And you're working on any other novels? I think that the next novel I write will be a sequel to Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. It's been 10 years, and I enjoyed writing a sequel to Little Brother much more than I expected I would. And it's got me thinking about sequels. And you're also continuing to work on Boing Boing. Uh, If someone searches Boing Boing, you gave a great link to an article about beige politics. Yeah, that Charlie Strauss wrote. Yeah, just simply, you know, blew my mind that article. Yeah, Charlie's a great writer. You know, he and I wrote a novel together that came out last fall called Rapture of the Nerds, and he's he's so much fun to read and to write with and to hang out with. We we toured a bit too. Since the interview, Corey Doctorow has written two novels, Walk Away, which came out in April 2017, and Attack Surface, which was published in October 2020. There are two new graphic novels in real life which was published in 2014, and Poesy the Monster Slayer in July 2020. There was also a collection of short fiction, Radicalized, which was published in March 2019. Nonfiction, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, Laws for the Internet Age, which was published by McSweeney's in 2014. Demon Haunted World, an essay from Locus Online in 2017, and How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism, published by Medium Editions in January 2021. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. 
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 